0: Friends and neighbors, welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. So good to have you with us. You know, in writing the Constitution, one of the most important things our founding fathers did, without saying so explicitly, was establishing a wall of separation between church and state. Without that, there would be no freedom of religion in this country because there would be an official state religion and government would be beholden to unelected religious leaders and not the people. But there are always those religious zealots out there who try to tear down the wall separating church and state, who wrongly insist that the United States is a Christian nation, that Christianity is our official religion, and that the only true Americans are conservative, Christian, and white. Such wrong-headed Christians are not only stronger than ever today, marching under the banner of what's called Christian nationalism, a new report shows that they were actively involved in the planning, organizing, and carrying out of the very violent and very unchrist-like sacking of the U.S. Capitol on January 6. On today's podcast, we examine how serious a threat Christian nationalism is to our democracy. Our guest, one of America's leading journalists covering faith and politics, Jack Jenkins, reporter for RNS, the religion news service. Jack Jenkins, it's been far too long. Good to connect with you again. Welcome to the Bill Press Pod. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So, Jack, you and I have talked about this a long time. Uh, before we get into the uh, details of this report, I want to ask you about it and about your new book. This whole question of religion and politics. It's basically been with us from the very foundation of this country, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as long as um, religious people participate in politics and in the political project, you're always going to have overlaps of the two.
0: And um, sometimes conflicts between the two and sometimes... um, emergence right or merger of the two oh
1: yeah oh yeah i think you know, as as some people have told me in the past you know th- th- separating church and state is different from separating faith and politics the the former is much easier to do than the latter right
0: um so have we gotten it right yet or are we still <laughs> working toward getting it right i mean something our founding fathers wrestled with and um as you report we're still wrestling with it today, aren't we?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I think, you know, whether we've got it right, it turns out to be a, a deeply debated, um, point of opinion. You know, I think that, since our founding, you know, even before the founding of the country, and people forget, you know, the, the Puritans came here, but within mm-hmm. a generation or two, they were hanging Quakers for worshiping differently from them. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, you know, we have we, there's a long history of religious conflict, you know, among Christians not even thinking each other are Christian in the United States, much less um, a uh, plurality of other religious traditions. But, you know, what we have, you know, what is also part of our history is, you know, these tensions between religious groups who operate in public as well as efforts by religious groups to build a stronger society. And both of those stories are often told at the same time at any given point in American history and, and unearthing which one is louder at any given time is often its own project.
0: So let's go to the reality of, uh, today. Uh, And the new report that came out last week, uh, it was released by the two groups, the Freedom from Religion Foundation and the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty.
1: Um, What does that report tell us? So this report kind of is in many ways um, pulling together the who's who um, in scholars and Um, activists and you know journalists who have been investigating Christian nationalism, specifically how it influenced um, both the January 6th insurrection and the events surrounding that insurrection. So you have sociologists in the report helping define you know, what Christian nationalism is and what it looks like and how it's detectable in society. You have you know, um, scholars talking about the dynamic of um, white nationalism that can sometimes influence um, myriad forms of Christian nationalism. And then you have the meat of the report, which is a painstakingly detailed, step-by-step chronicling of how Christian nationalism, this appeal to a Christian nation, not only showed up a lot in um, the insurrection um, visibly, that you could see people waving flags that argued as much or, you know, prayed um, prayers in and around the Capitol that said as much, but you know, arguably drove a lot of these people to be there on January 6th. And it certainly came up in a lot of their rhetoric. So it's, it, the, the, the meat of the report is talking about those details that we all saw on January 6th, but pe- um, I'm peeling back a layer to, to show the religious elements that were very strongly felt by, it seems, many of the participants. Well, watching that what was going on live... I remember uh, just
0: falling off my chair when I saw these are people who were uh, assaulting police officers, trashing the United States Capitol, and some of them standing there with signs, Jesus saves, or some of them yeah. carrying crosses. I was thinking, you know, what the hell is going on? How did, how did this happen? Well, so let me ask you, first of all, you use the phrase Christian nationalism. Uh, I think a lot of listeners
1: may not be familiar with that phrase. What does it mean? So uh, probably the simplest um, uh, version or definition of it is the belief that America was founded as a Christian nation and that it either has deviated from that and needs to return to being a Christian nation or its Christian identity needs to be protected. And I want to stress that the second part of that sentence is arguably more important than the first. The historical part is less important than that desire to create a Christian Nation. Um, now, the thing about Christian nationalism, it's kind—it's of, a political and religious term. So, what I mean by that is that it is disputed in the same way, reason that you know, the same way that we have disputes over what liberal and conservative mean, um, or that we use terms like authoritarian or authoritarianism that can look different in different places. Christian nationalism can look different. Um, depending on which individual you are speaking to, um, for instance, you know somebody who is Catholic, their iteration of Christian nationalism can look a little different than somebody who is a um, you know regular churchgoer who is a white evangelical. That can look a little different than a Hispanic Protestant that might appeal to Christian nationalism, you know, and, and along and along and along. In practice, though, it, can, it is a powerful enough language, a common appeal to a, a version of American identity, that it can gather these, you know, seemingly disparate groups of people together in the same space, and whatever differences they might have theologically or even politically, that shared appeal to a Christian nation is enough to get, you know, um, somebody who might be a regular um, Baptist churchgoer um, from Alabama, to march alongside a guy who was wearing, you know, horns and and blue face paint um, with Norse tattoos in his body to both end up in the Senate chamber on January 6th and both, you know, participate in a prayer that appealed, um, you know, to Jesus Christ and appealed to Christian nationalist sentiments. So it's kind of this unifying force for many.
0: So Christian nationalism, uh, that we were founded as a Christian country, that the Christian uh, Christianity Uh, And we have to get back to that, as you said, and Christianity must be protected. Does that mean uh, Christianity should be the official state religion?
1: Well, there are. So um, that is the belief of some. So, for instance, uh, two of the sociologists that show up in this report, Samuel Perry and Andrew Whitehead, um, they do a lot of sociological polling and surveying on this. And uh, one of the questions that is often asked in a array of questions, to basically to grade how Christian nationalist someone is, is whether they believe that um, the, the Christianity should be declared this, um, the United States state religion, right? they a direct violation of the Establishment Clause of our Constitution. Um, but, you know, that that is one of the things that if you score highly on that, you're you know, likely to also score highly on the other metrics of Christian nationalism. So yes, there are absolutely Christian nationalists who believe not only that we are a Christian nation de facto, but that we should, you know, de jure you know, more explicitly declare this to be a Christian nation.
0: Uh, w- which I guess follows their belief that our founding documents are divinely inspired. That's also one of their
1: beliefs, correct? So the Constitution and the Bible are on the same plane, so I should note that one of the interesting things about Christian nationalism, because it often manifests as an identity, you will find folks who have very specific, detailed theologies around it, right? Like this this kind of, um, you know, sacralization of the founding documents, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence. There are also religious traditions where that is already true. So for instance, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Mormons also believe that the founding documents have a sacred nature. Interestingly, they are less active to be participants in the kind of Christian nationalism we are describing here. This is a more um, white evangelical project, although there are certain Catholic contingents and even some more than Mormon contingents. But yes, you will often find this sort of sacred appeal to those documents in the founding fathers, almost as if they are operating as biblical prophets. That is a common theme among many of the more um, church-going Christian nationalists. Uh,
0: And I read in your report, uh, your uh, story uh, about this report uh, on the Religion News Service, that uh, for Christian nationalists, the definition of a true American uh, is someone who is conservative, Christian, and white, right? Um, so you've got to ask, what happens to African Americans uh, in this equation? Where are Jews in this equation?
1: Right. So this has been an interesting um, element that's emerged. So you know, Christian nationalism has taken a lot of different forms throughout American history. Um, but, you know, as scholars have pointed out to me, I've done a lot of reporting on Christian nationalism recently. You know, the, the Ku Klux Klan was a overtly Christian nationalist movement, right? And uh, there was, they were very clear about what they um, envisioned Christianity to be and that it was synonymous with white identity as well as their version of Christianity. And they were also very exclusive about who counted as a Christian, right? You know, they were also burning the crosses in the yards of Catholics here in right. the United States, not to mention other religious groups like Jewish Americans. Now, one thing we have noticed, actually, in the lead up to January 6, scholars told me recently, you know, scholars of extremism have told me that, especially in the aftermath of January 6, Christian nationalism has actually become more vocally expressed in, um, more overtly extremist circles, so more overtly white nationalist circles, um, they've started adopting, um, Christian nationalist rhetoric pretty aggressively. You know, one of the groups that stormed the Capitol on January 6th was a group uh, uh, that, you know, America first is their flag, their ensign. Um, if you ever watched the video of, you know, people in the Senate dais, you know, leading a prayer, one of the first people into the Senate chamber, one of the first insurrectionists, was carrying this America First banner. Um, They are led by um, a leader named Nick Fuentes, who has been identified by many as a white nationalist. And the chant that they make when they gather together quite frequently is, Christ is King. And they chanted that on January 6th as well. And again, that's, you know, he has in his speeches conflated America as a Christian nation and belief in Jesus Christ with white, uh, what he calls a, a core white identity here in the United States, um, you know, describing it in similar terms.
0: So is the essence of Christian nationalism racist and anti-Semitic?
1: I think uh, the, particularly the modern iterations that we are seeing in the United States um, are often articulated that way. Now, there would be folks who would note that in any movement, there are often, you know, elements of diversity. You will see, right. um, you know, there, there are, for instance, Hispanic Protestants and even African-Americans, who have, um, you know, expressed deep vocal support for elements of Christian nationalism, both on January sixth and other contexts, and so there is some dialogue around how it's not an exclusively white movement, but in terms of how it is manifesting, particularly more recently. Um, you know, the, the the overlap between white nationalism and appeals to white supremacy and Christian nationalism seems to be increasing um, as the movement continues to coalesce.
0: But and, and what I thought, why I found the report pretty interesting and shocking, in fact, and I don't think there's been enough reporting about this, is that among the organizations that organized, that planned, uh, that inspired the whole January 6th attack on the Capitol... And the events leading up to that, the, uh, the million MAGA march and everything, uh, were Christian organizations, right? Mm-hmm. Believing the election was rigged to set out to stop Congress from doing its job, right? Uh, right. And f- I saw two, 20, two-thirds of them, according to someone quoted in your article, believe that the election was rigged. And 40% of them believe that violence uh, is not only okay, but may be necessary to stop the
1: steal, so-called. I mean, how do they square that with the Gospels? Right. Well, th- this is an interesting um, element of Christian nationalism, right? So I should note that while there are members of this movement who are kind of, for lack of a better term, the high priests of Christian nationalism, those who preach it from pulpits quite um, literally and who you know have theologies around it, there are a number of Christian nationalists who aren't even that... Frequent churchgoers churchgoers at all. It's simply an appeal to their identity. Um, they actually, some Whitehead and Perry, um, in, in some of their other studies, have kind of noted that when you account for Christian nationalism in a group of people, when you, when you set that as a part of the rubric and then look at religious, um, you know, looking specifically at Christians, look at religious observance, it actually has a reverse correlation. The more religious you are if you account for Christian nationalism, in other words, take it out. Of that rubric, the less likely you are to believe in Christian nationalist ideals. That the more church going you are, basically, the more conflict you find between this identity, this ideology and identity, and the scriptures that you are reading. And in fact, some of the most stalwart opponents of Christian nationalism and critics of it have been Christian voices, black. Protestants in particular, as well as any, any number of mainline Christians and Catholics, have been actively decrying it, arguably throughout its history, right? You know, Many of the iterations of Christian nationalism throughout American history, it was those who were left out, Jewish Americans, African Americans, what have you, who have been decrying it throughout its history. And that trend continues in the most recent iterations, where you're finding um, any number of pastors, priests, you know, imams, and rabbis pointing out the fact that the, the, uh, the belief in many of the Christian nationalist ideals expressed seem to directly conflict um, with you know, the scriptures themselves or longstanding Christian theology. Now, I will also note that there is no shortage of violence in the history, history of Christianity. So it's certainly not unprecedented um, that that would be a part of it. But there is also certainly no shortage of criticisms of this identity and ideology today.
0: So, uh, is it fair to say that Christian nationalism is more than a religious movement? It's really a, an extreme right wing political movement with a of Christianity.
1: So I think, I think, you know, this is something that I've heard debated by scholars and commentators for a while. Is it a political movement? Is it a religious movement? I think, you know, the reality is that it can be both and, you know, and, and in you know, 2022 and 2021, um, the parts that seem to be mattering in a big way are the political elements, right? Now, right. there are yeah. groups like Patriot Churches, that, that's a kind of church now, where they, they, they call themselves Patriot Churches, and they preach that the election was stolen, and you know, they, they, they preach any number of elements of Christian nationalism. But it is more often a group of political actors and political commentators who are leading this.
0: Right. Well, so on the political side, and these are people who do identify the election was stolen, meaning uh, they're identifying with Donald Trump. I mean, look, if you're talking about a leader of a religious movement, Donald Trump will be the last person on the freaking planet, right, because of his life and lifestyle and and history and, uh, I don't know, lack of basic decency, I think, that, that one would consider. And yet, Again, reading from your article, here's this evangelical speaker, Lance Walnow, right? Um, quote, fighting with Trump is fighting with God. Uh, or this attorney from Georgia, William Calhoun, who's w- the one who uh, allegedly broke into Pelosi's office, uh, who was quoted as saying on the social media, God is on Trump's side. God is not on the Democrat side. I mean, I know it's hard to connect. I know it's hard for you. It's hard for me. But Donald
1: Trump, really? Yeah, this has been... So I've been writing about Christian nationalism roughly since, you know, Trump came into office. And, you know, there were some other commentators who kind of noted Christian nationalism as key to his rise. I will yeah. note what's interesting is that early on in particular, you had a group of, including Lance, who you mentioned there um, a group of faith leaders who kind of did have these sort of theological explanations for Trump. So, for instance, they saw him as the Cyrus president, this reference to a biblical figure who also yeah. was may perhaps morally suspect, but who could be used by God. And so, there would be this attempt by many of these faith leaders to to kind of dismiss elements of Trump's personality or his past that may not you know match up very well with many of the you know family values quote unquote that has been um advocated for by the religious right for decades but they would say but you know since he signs on the dotted line and supports this idea and in terms of you know wanting to appoint conservative justices to the supreme court to wanting to um you know get doing away with the johnson amendment allow um churches to be more explicitly political in their pulpits in terms of endorsing candidates because trump does those sorts of things and his positions on abortion and other things that god is using this individual and thus he is a figure of, um, of divine, you know, appointed by God. In fact, there was one, one of the insurrectionists um, who was, who was uh, praying outside of the Capitol, um, who was later arrested. He talked about, and he has said publicly that he, you know, thought um, uh, Trump was appointed by God to be president of the United States. And that sort of theology really permeated among the close supporters and vocal advocates that were pastors and preachers that Trump surrounded himself both during his campaign and after he became president. And so that kind of, um, you know, theology, you know, became so foundational. And I remember um, right after he, uh, the, his remarks about the Charlottesville, you know, the, the white nationalist event that you know, led to the tragic death of one individual, and Trump made his infamous both sides remark, um, it was, you know, the White House would not send a person to, I remember one, I think was ABC, um, to go kind of speak on Trump's behalf to explain his remarks. Instead they redirected them to Jerry Falwell Jr., then the President of Liberty University to speak about Donald Trump and law and, and basically back up his remarks. So these religious leaders have consistently done offense and defense for Trump politically in public to the point where it was, you know you, whether or not his behavior or his rhetoric jived with um, traditional, you know, norms within Christian, Um, pastor in pastor pulpits, it didn't matter because they were willing to say he is one of us and will advocate for our values or at least our policies.
0: Well, how much of this, you mentioned, you used the word, uh, Jack, how much of this is driven by abortion?
1: Well, I think there's certainly a lot of it more recently, right? You know, I think it was, um, I think the, the, the wanting to overturn Roe v. Wade um, and seeing the judicial process as the way to do that is, it has been a longstanding um, project of the religious right, um, and you know, ever you know, for, for, for decades now. And Trump, as you know, this figure who could be elected and then would appoint um, conservative justices, often looking specifically at abortion and Roe v. Wade. Um, he certainly was an instrument of that. So in some ways you could say it was a huge part of, um, both Trump's rise. You know, abortion comes up less often when you're talking to Christian nationalists, but it's not like it's a, you know, the, quite frequently when you talk to, um, when you, when these folks are interviewed or the way they articulate themselves in public, it is like taken as fact that they see abortion is wrong in all or most cases and that, um, and that, abortion rights, as we understand them currently in the United States, you know, they see that as as a sinful element of uh, the American project. So um, I think, particularly going into this year, you know, I, what was noticeable about the March for Life this past year um, was that there was there was the presence of white nationalist groups, both that America First group that I mentioned earlier. They were at the March for Life, this giant anti-abortion. Um, Uh, you know, event in Washington, D.C. every year that Trump spoke at while he was president, as well as um, Patriot Front, which is another white nationalist group. I will note that Patriot Front in particular, you know, March for Lifers were pushing back against their presence there. We're not happy that they were there, but it certainly seems like these groups, particularly America First, um, you know, with their with their kind of more overtly Christian nationalist sentiment, and even some of the speakers on stage during the March for Life, when they were articulating um, you know uh, Christian nationalist sentiments this year, you know it again provides this unifying force that encompasses both you know all of the elements that we've previously discussed as well as abortion.
0: Well, this certainly does not represent um, one would hope at least uh, the uh, total picture of Christianity today. Uh, Uh, Jack, you've been writing about um, uh, some people who preach and who practice uh, a more traditional, let's hope a more biblical, a more Jesus-oriented, a more familiar kind of Christianity uh, in your most recent book, American Prophets. Uh, I want to talk to you about that and talk about some of these people and their counter movement, if you will. Um, But we'll take first a quick break here on the Bill Press Spot, ask you to just Hold on for just a second, then we'll come back and resume our conversation. For today's podcast, uh, I want to direct your attention to an organization talking about separation of church and state, an organization that I've long been a member of. It's called Americans United. It used to be Americans United for Church and State. They've been around since 1948. They're leaders of all faiths who came together in 1948, and are still together today. Their sole mission is to protect and to preserve the separation of church and state. Very, very important work. I encourage you to uh, do what I did, become a member of Americans United. Check out their website for all the good work that they're doing. You'll find out at au.org, au.org. And we're back on today's podcast. Our guest, Jack Jenkins, a reporter for the Religion News new Service and author of the book American Prophets, looking at the religious roots of progressive politics in this country. Uh, so, Jack, we talked about some of the leaders of this uh, Christian nationalism. Who are the... Um, Who represents the other side of Christianity, if if you will, the Christianity that I uh, embrace and was raised in? Uh, Who are the true leaders of Christianity uh, in this country, both those who um, are no longer with us, but those who are leading the movement today? Uh, Let's start with, historically, who are the real progressive religious leaders that you salute or would recognize?
1: I feel like, you know, some of the classic examples that people often point to, and perhaps the most preeminent classic example is, of course, Martin Luther King. Of course, um, yeah. And the leaders of the civil rights movement, right? That was an unapologetically religious um, movement that, you know, for racial justice and racial equality um, that in many ways became the template for how a lot of progressive activism would, you know, continue throughout, you know, for decades to come. And it was rooted in faith. I should also note that, you um, you know, the the progressive movement, as we understand it, the title, the term, um, you know, many historians argue that it came out of the social gospel movement of the early mm-hmm. 20th century. This, uh, this understanding, this, this series of pastors, you know, led particularly by a pastor named Walter Rauschenbusch um, and Arnold that network. Exactly. And you know, they were preaching this idea that of, of social sin, of, of that, that, that society can do bad things that could be corrected. And they were particularly concerned about the poor. And Martin Luther King himself identified as a social gospeler. You know, people who were really um, you know, involved with the social gospel movement or you know, sympathetic to it ended up playing a big role in the creation of the New Deal. And so, you know, progressive and, and, you know, faith also played um, uh, any number of a a deep role in any number of movements ranging from uh, the women's suffrage movement to the abolitionist movement. And so there is this other very different um, parallel track of religious faith based advocacy in the United States that looks wildly different from the Christian nationalism that you and I were just describing.
0: Right. I think of William Sloan Coffin and Father Drinan and their opposition to the war in Vietnam as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, how about today's leaders? Who, uh, you know, a couple of them that you uh, uh, would cite as leaders of, if you will, a, I don't know what to call it, the true Christianity?
1: In this vein, it, it, there's a direct historical tie here, right? So Reverend William Barber um, of North Carolina he, he leads the Portables campaign, which is picking up the final campaign that Martin Luther King was launching mm-hmm. before he was assassinated. And Barber in particular has, you know, led, give, give you an idea, his movement specifically decries religious nationalism, has decried, you know, elements of Christian nationalism for you know years now. And, you know, he he, he spoke famously at the 2016 Democratic National Convention Um, but he has also led a series of protests over the last year in support of voting rights, in support of the Build Back Better bill, particularly pushing um, Senator Joe Manchin to support eradicating the filibuster. Um, Kyrsten Sinema as well, also protesting them. They actually hosted one of the largest mass uh, mass arrest, peaceful protests in American history. It happened last year on Capitol Hill, led by the Portables Campaign. Um, mm-hmm. That is deeply faith-led. The co-leader of that is Reverend Liz Theoharis, a Presbyterian minister. And those two have been deeply active in this space. They are, now, you know, the interesting thing about um, Uh, the progressive religious movement is that it is multi-faith and it includes a myriad of different sub movements. So for instance, another major religious movement on the progressive side has been, you know, indigenous activists who've been fighting for um, action on climate change and pushing back against pipelines. So, you know, the Standing Rock, was a premium example of actually they identified as a spiritual movement that these mm-hmm. indigenous activists have been pushing for quite some time. there's also any number of churches uh, and parishes that have been participating in what 's called the new sanctuary movement, which is this effort um, to you know uh, basically house undocumented immigrants who are at risk of deportation in houses of worship in direct defiance of the federal government. This movement exploded underneath Trump. Um, because uh, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement is unlikely to raid churches, and so they've done that to help get um, stays of deportation dropped for immigrants. In that regard, again, all of this under the mantle of faith. You also see that similar movements happen in synagogues and mosques as well. And the interfaith movement, as a broader category, has also proven to be very important, particularly building alliances between Jewish communities and Muslim communities and Christian communities. Um, that that. that were uh, that saw an uptick in hate crimes during the Trump era. Um, You know, right after Trump was elected, we had, you know, an immigrant church, uh, a primarily immigrant heavy church right outside of D.C. Um, Their sign was defaced with the slogan, Trump Nation Whites Only. Um, It was a local Islamic group that then sent them letters of sympathy um, to say, you know, say, you know, we're here with you in solidarity. And then when a local Jewish community center got bomb threats just a, a few weeks later, it was that immigrant heavy church that extended solidarity to that, um, Jewish community center as well. And those have been repeated over and over again in the last few years to the point where when you saw things like, um, the pushback to the ban that was originally, um, you know, Trump campaigned on as a Muslim ban during his campaign for president, when that came to fruition, you know, when, if you went to those airports where hundreds of people flooded the airports to to decry that ban, um, and Mm -hmm. to, you know, stand up for Muslim um, Americans and Muslim people um, all over the world, if you looked at the signs, so many of them were quoting scripture from the Quran, from the Torah and from the Bible and other sacred texts. And so that complicated network of groups has often, you know, showed up more in the streets than on television, but that's just a a quick survey of the kinds of actions they've been doing over the last few years. Uh,
0: I want to ask you about a couple of individuals um, Uh, not affiliated with the, if you will, official church movement, either Christian nationalism or what I've been calling true Christianity. Um, We've always expected our president to have a certain, profess at least a certain faith, uh, if not always practice a certain faith. With Joe Biden, we have uh, probably the man who, since Jimmy Carter, who has professed his faith more and practiced his faith more, than any other president. Um, why don't we hear more about that with, with, uh, with Joe Biden?
1: Yeah, this is an interesting thing. So he, you know, uh, Joe Biden campaigned and was pretty vocal about his faith during his campaign. It was an interesting element during the democratic yeah. national convention. He, he dedicated a, There was a dedicated section to talking about his faith, and yet it doesn't get the same attention as, you know, uh, um, as, say, you know, people talking about Donald Trump's faith, who, you know, wasn't by his own admission and necessarily an avid churchgoer. Uh, um, doesn't, and, doesn't exist,
0: John. Donald Trump's faith, I would argue, doesn't exist. You'll, I mean, Biden carries a rosary with him, right? He never, right. Miss, never misses a Sunday mass.
1: Right. And... um and, and, and it's and it's it's something he's willing. To, he talks about quite frequently. He'll quote yeah. Saint Augustine off the cuff in in speeches, even when it's not in the teleprompter. It's clearly a big part of who he is and how he understands even his political persona.
0: Right. Um, uh, now, on a totally different level, uh, we have a new justice of the Supreme Court, Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, profile of her in this current issue of the New Yorker magazine which I must admit, I've just started to read. I haven't been all the way through, but uh, I find this very troubling. The headline is, quote, The Justice Isn't Just Conservative, She's the Product of a Christian Legal Movement Eager to Remake America whoa, what the hell? Is that Christian nationalism or is this like some other movement that we ought to be aware of?
1: Right. Um, You know, without having read that article specifically, what I can say is that there has been no shortage of conservative Christians, particularly Catholics, um, but um, evangelicals as well, who have, you know, really kind of created a legal Framework, or at least um, it's been documented by a number of Supreme Court reporters that there are just these certain societies and certain um, you know pathways to the Supreme Court that are paved by groups that tend to you know support or defend you know what might be considered more traditional religious right. Organizations and Amy Coney Barrett, in particular, you know, she talked about how you know in in hearings when she was questioned by lawmakers that if there was a part of Supreme Court jurisprudence that she would want to clean up, she you know referred to um, you know the religious freedom, religious liberty questions. Now it's unclear precisely what that means for her, but I think that there was certainly um, quite um, rumblings in these more conservative legal communities that that could mean. You know, talking about religious liberty in ways that probably benefit um, conservative Christians in particular—that that when you know these longstanding campaigns to uh, under the under the banner of religious freedom to separate themselves from you know re- um, regulations on, for instance, uh, inclusion and LGBTQ rights, um, and you know possibly also regarding abortion. Um, and, re- and further restricting its use. And so, you know, there's, there's, there's a long history here of um, legal scholars in conservative spaces uh, appealing to faith, if not overtly, then um, more you know appealing to things like natural law. Um, that's those sort of terms and phrases that deeply inform the way that they also, you know, see jurisprudence and um, legal cases. So whether or not that means that Jerry committee Boder herself is you know, a direct champion of those. And I know that there's been a lot of dialogue about religious societies that she's belonged to. Um, She certainly seems to be in line with some of the goals of that movement.
0: She seems to be, to feel that she is on a divine mission to go to the Supreme court Mm -hmm. um, to um, affect decisions that will uh, embrace or bring about her version of what uh, a Christian nation really ought to be. Uh, that may be reading too much into her, but from everything I've read about her and what, everything I've read so far in this article.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the undercovered things, um, I think, really is looking at the religious element of a lot of conservative legal circles. I think that there has been reporting on it in the broadest sense. You know, Alliance Defending Freedom, for instance, is one group that gets a lot of attention. Um, but I do think that there has been a very clear um, religious undergirding element to a lot of this that comes up sometimes in Supreme Court rulings. Um, mm-hmm. That you know, I think that you know, for instance, in the recent oral arguments that we heard regarding you know this th- this Mississippi law that could um, result in you know the gutting or overturning of Roe, we heard one of the liberal justices make an appeal to the fact that while when we define personhood in the abortion context, there are religious traditions that actually don't um, define personhood the same way that many conservative Christians do. And, you know, the fact that that perspective is not one that's more normative in a lot of legal circles speaks to the fact and the influence of a lot of these more um, conservative Christian legal circles. And I think there's a lot more reporting um, to be done in that space.
0: And finally, I want to ask you. Uh, I always, uh, <laughs> um, I guess, really la- raise my eyebrows, but also laugh out loud whenever I hear uh, politicians uh, talking about uh, how God has spoken to them and told yeah. them to vote a certain way or to do a certain thing. I yeah, talked to again. a lot of
1: politicians. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. It happened again this week when the new mayor of New York, Eric Adams. Uh, when he announced the creation of a faith-based initiative in his office, which, of course, a, a lot of mayors and governors and presidents do, uh, he told this crowd, quote, God told me, Eric, you're going to be mayor, <laughs> Uh, what
1: what do you think when you hear a politician say that you know this is an interesting thing about being a religion reporter I can't I don't you know I wasn't part of that conversation no one leaked me that uh, that that email from God and so the you know when you're covering them you take politicians um, at their word in terms of whether they have yeah. uh, they've had a conversation with the divine what is more on on my end of the reporting spectrum is whether or not the conversations that have divine the divine at the beliefs that they profess, um, are matching up with what they're, you know, the policies that they're imposing on others. But I will say, you know, the number of, of politicians who said that God, um, (laughs) told them to run for office and then is, is actually significantly greater than the number of politicians that end up in office. So I'm really, I have some theological questions about, you know, what God is doing behind the scenes there.
0: Uh, maybe his, uh, maybe his influence is not as great as some people think that it is, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether Donald Trump ever said God told him to run for president. He probably did say that at some point. I would not, <laughs> I would not be surprised at all. Faith and politics, religion and politics, it is, uh, certainly an ongoing conversation an ongoing reality. And you're right in the middle of it, uh, Jack Jenkins, and we're right in the middle of it, Today, uh, because of this new report on the influence of Christian nationalism on January 6, again, that report said that Christian nationalists used was used to bolster, justify, and intensify the January 6 attacks on the Capitol, which is not something that I think um, that uh, Jesus Christ would support in any way whatsoever. Hey, Jack, thanks so much for your good work. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Jack, I want to mention, we will have a link to buy your book, uh, American Profits, which I ordered today. I'm sorry I'm so late getting around to it. Uh, But we'll have a link uh, for our listeners to uh, get a copy of that book in the episode notes to this edition of the Bill Press Pod.
1: Well, I certainly appreciate that. Thank you so much.
0: All right. Good for you. Thanks, Jack. Talk to you again soon. All
1: right. Take care. And that's it for today's
0: podcast. Again, on that important issue of church and state, I encourage you to take a look at, and in fact, join up with Americans United uh, at au.org. The one organization that I know and I support whose whole mission is to preserve that important separation between church and state in this country. Uh, And that's it for today. Again, we'll be back on Friday with our weekly Reporters Roundtable, taking a look at the big news of the week with three of Washington's top political reporters. And we'll talk about um, still the confusing message uh, between the CDC and the White House about when the masks go away and when they don't and what we're supposed to be doing about it. How about Donald Trump uh, and his continuing battle with the National Archives and the January 6th committee? and? check in to find out whether there is still no war in Ukraine. Hopefully not. Again, that's it for today. Take care of yourself. Stay strong. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Come back and see us on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.